When I was in high school, I discovered Chuck Norris. <clears throat> our family had recently purchased our first VCR, and a little store opened up down the street called The Movie Place. It was Friday night, and my friend Chad and I went out in search of a movie to rent, and we stumbled upon an absolute gem, arguably one of the top five movies of all time, Missing in Action, starring Chuck Norris. We were completely elated to learn that there was a Missing in Action Part 2, and then our senior year of high school, Missing in Action 3. It was in the second movie, Missing in Action 2, which was actually a prequel, that the beginning of the story is told. It's a story about these U.S. Army soldiers in Vietnam, and they're, they're fighting, and they're, they're captured and brought into a prison camp. They're held as prisoners of war. In the movie, they're held captive by the sadistic, cold-hearted Colonel Yen, who tortures them and forces them to live in inhumane conditions. In the movie, it appears the soldiers are all going to die in this prison camp until Chuck Norris escapes and comes back with help, though he doesn't really need it, and sets the other <laughs> captives free. He comes back and rescues the prisoners. Now, I realize not all of you appreciate the fine acting and cinematography of the 1980s missing in action movies, but I still consider them favorites. <laughs> the idea of a prisoner of war, it goes all the way back essentially to the beginning of time. The very first peoples and cultures would, would go to war against each other and often would capture other soldiers, even civilians, bring them back to the home country and hold them as prisoners of war. Sometimes these prisoners were killed. Sometimes they were enlisted as slaves. And on occasion, they were set free at the end of the conflict. In the Old Testament, on several occasions, God's people are, are held captive against their will. God's people are put in slavery and held captive. One example, about 600 years before Jesus, the Babylonians came in, they attacked God's people and carried them off into exile in Babylon. A couple of the familiar Bible stories that you may know from this time would be stories like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This took place in Babylon when God's people were held captive against their will. Continue to rewind another thousand or more years before this Babylonian captivity. God's people had moved to Egypt during a famine. And they had moved to Egypt. There's a change in leadership. And God's people became slaves for a period of 400 years. Now this wasn't a result of any kind of war. But nonetheless, God's people were held hostage. They were held in bondage, in captivity against their will in extremely harsh conditions for 400 years until God raised up Moses to lead them out of captivity, out of slavery, and into freedom in the promised land. Today I want to look at two verses of Scripture, two verses of Scripture in the Bible that talks about how God sets people free. Two verses that talk about how God can take people who are held in bondage and captivity and make them free people. If you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1, 
13 and 14. It will also be on the screen. And as you're turning there, let me offer a prayer for us. Praying from Psalm 43, which says, Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to a place where you dwell. God, this is our prayer as we go into a short time of study of your word. We pray for your light and your truth, that you would open our eyes to see, open our hearts to understand, and I pray that you would provide truth to us, that we would respond to it in obedience with the ultimate goal of being at the place where you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Colossians 1 says that as followers of Jesus, you and I have been rescued or delivered out of one domain and brought into another. One image that the Bible uses to describe people is the image of being held captive by an enemy. Just like the Israelites in Babylon held captive for 70 years, just like the Israelites in Egypt held hostage and enslaved for 400 years, so the Bible describes you and me as people who have been held captive, are currently being held captive, and need to be set free. The Bible describes God as the kind of God who is on a rescue mission to set people free from their captivity. Our God is a missionary God who goes out looking for people who are in bondage, and he frees them. Colossians 1 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. What is this domain of darkness that the Bible talks about? It sounds eerie and sinister, doesn't it? This theme of darkness and light is common in all sorts of literature and film. If you've read Chronicles of Narnia, you've read in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about the white witch who she represents this, this realm of darkness where she keeps Narnia, where it's, it's always winter but never Christmas. And her kingdom of darkness stands opposed to King Aslan and his kingdom of freedom and light. In the movie Star Wars, you see you've got characters like Darth Vader who represent this realm of darkness, who battle against this realm of light. People like Luke Skywalker... Darth Vader and other Sith and, and emperors seek to, to pull people into the dark side. All sorts of literature and movies depict this conflict. It's also depicted in the Bible, particularly in the Gospel of John, this battle between light and darkness. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is referred to as being a light in the middle of darkness. Quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Matthew 4 says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In the middle of thick, intense darkness, a light dawns. Jesus appears bringing light to those who are held in captivity. A light has dawned. Light has moved into darkness. Let me give you some practical examples of what this darkness looks like around the world, this domain of darkness that the Bible talks about. Let's say there's a relief agency, such as Samaritan's Purse, or, or really it could be any agency that seeks to bring needed 
food and water and supplies to people who are starving, people who are refugees, people who are, are victims of whatever. And this mission agency seeks to bring supplies, yet they're intercepted by a corrupt government or corrupt soldiers or cor other corrupt individuals who intercept the supplies, take them and keep them from the people who need it. Or it's governments who drop bombs on schools. They drop bombs on agencies seeking to deliver relief. Okay, this is darkness. This is the realm of darkness at work in our world. A darkness that would try to keep people from being set free. Another example. Little girls all over the world. Some, some estimate as many as 27 million people to today are victims of human trafficking around the world. Little girls are sometimes sold by their parents, sometimes kidnapped against their will for a whole variety of reasons are taken and brought into this industry where they're forced to do things that exploit them and bring shame to their innocence. Okay, this is darkness. This is the realm of darkness at work in our world in the 21st century. In 1994, one more example. In the country of Rwanda, an ethnic cleansing took place where half a million to a million people were killed purely because of their ethnic background. And this was a murder, an atrocity that was led by high-level officials in government and in military. This is the realm of darkness. You see it expressed through things like greed, corruption, pride, self-interest, apathy, murder, abuse, broken relationships, abandoned children, mistreated individuals. All kinds of things stem out of and fuel this realm of darkness. And yet God says a light has dawned. A light has appeared in the darkness. And God says that you and I as followers of Jesus have been rescued out of this domain of darkness. We've been brought out of this controlling darkness. We have been set free. Now some of you are thinking, okay, I understand. Okay, I understand that some people have lived very horrible lives. I, I get it that some people for 10 20, 30 years have lived in active rebellion against God and you know, have created a very raw, rebellious story. And then they find Jesus and their life is transformed. Okay, I get that. that. I can see how that person was brought out of darkness and into light. But my story is kind of boring. I became a Christian at a really young age. Maybe your story is, you know, I was five, I was seven, and and I've pretty much lived a, a good life. I've not really done anything seemingly wrong. You know, I've, I've grew up in church. I went to youth group. I, I've just lived a, a pretty steady life. And it doesn't feel like I was ever rescued out of darkness. You know, sometimes you'll even hear a testimony that sounds something like this. You know, for years I walked in darkness. I denied myself no earthly pleasure. And then at age seven, I responded to the gospel and was made a new creation. And you go, you know, it just doesn't feel like, doesn't feel like I was ever held captive because I was always a good person. Here's what I want to suggest. 
I want to suggest that the person who came to Christ as a little kid and has pretty much walked with Jesus all throughout life is just as much rescued from darkness as the person who's created a very raw story for 15 or 20 years. You see, I think we operate under this assumption that just because I was never as bad as I possibly could have been, then I didn't need to be rescued. Even if the darkness has never been expressed to its fullest potential, it doesn't mean I didn't need rescued. The little kid who comes to Christ as a young child is just as much rescued out of darkness, even though that darkness has never been expressed to its fullest potential. In the movie Batman, The Dark Knight, I guess I can't give an unqualified endorsement of the movie, but in in the movie, the Joker is ranting and raving in this one particular scene. And and the Joker, he says something to the effect of, you know, really, we're all kind of the same. You're no different than I am. I'm just ahead of the curve. Remember that scene? I'm just ahead of the curve. And it might be that some of you Some of us are way behind the curve. Maybe our darkness has never been expressed to its fullest potential. And some of you you have lived a life way ahead of the curve. The point being, just because darkness hasn't been expressed to its fullest potential doesn't mean that we haven't been rescued out of it. And that's something to celebrate. The other image in this passage that Paul uses is that of being redeemed. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Here's the picture of redemption. It's a picture that centers around the slave market. People are lined up being sold as slaves. And the Bible pictures us as all at one time having been a part of the slave market. We're lined up to be sold and someone comes along and purchases us Not to continue to keep us in slavery, but to set us free. And this is the picture that the Bible calls redemption. This is what Jesus has done. He's come, he's found people, you and me, people like us, on the slave market, being sold into captivity. And Jesus purchases freedom, setting us free from bondage. The Bible calls it redemption. Many Bible scholars look at this passage in Colossians, and they call it the new exodus. And that is, they see in this passage an allusion back to the Old Testament where God raised up Moses to bring his people out of captivity in Egypt and into the freedom of the promised land. Scholars look at this and say, this is an allusion. This is a New Testament exodus where God's people are brought out of slavery and into the freedom of of the new covenant. One scholar says of this passage, Paul is asserting that in Jesus, that in Jesus, the true Israel, the true king, the one whom God loves, in Jesus, God's people are rescued from the dark power that has enslaved them and brought them into the blessings of membership in the new covenant. Just as the Israelites were led out of slavery from Egypt, just as They were set free from captivity in Babylon. Just as they were rescued from their dark captor that enslaved them. So you and I have been brought into freedom. Freedom of the new covenant in Jesus. Now this raises a question, a very important question. Do freed people have any obligation 
to those who are still held hostage? Do free people have any obligation, any responsibility to those who are still in darkness? And I hope inside of you is a resounding yes, there's an obligation. There's another pastor in town. He started a nonprofit organization that's designed to raise awareness of sex trafficking. And I really like the name of his nonprofit. It's simply titled Free People, Free People. Now think about that for a minute. Let that soak in. Free people, free people. His mission statement reads, free people, free people operates under the assumption that people who are free have an obligation to rescue others from slavery. Near the end of the book of Acts, Paul describes this as his mission in life. In Acts 26, he's giving his testimony. That is, he's telling his conversion story. Paul was an intense persecutor of Christianity in the church. He hated Christians, he hated the church, and he did everything he could to stop it. And then one day he's on his horse and he's riding to this little city called Damascus, and God interrupts his life. God throws him off of his horse, temporarily blinds him, and then Paul gets up and goes with a new mission in life. He says, as he's giving his testimony in Acts 26, that God has called him, sparing some of the details here, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. You see, Paul believed he had an obligation to go into the darkness, to go back where people are held captive and call them out of darkness and into light. And he went on to spend his whole life focused on this mission of calling those in darkness into light, of seeking to rescue those in captivity. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you and I have the same mission. We were brought out of darkness and, and into light, into freedom, so that we can proclaim something that's true about God. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, we've been given this, this mission of proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness. This is something that's worthy of talking about, that God rescued me, God set me free. In 1955, the Department of Defense wrote a code of conduct for those in the military who were captured or would be potentially captured as POWs. The code reads, if I am captured, I will continue to resist by all means available. I will make every effort to escape and to aid others to escape. I will accept neither parole nor special favors from the enemy. You see, free people have an obligation to go back into the enemy's domain and rescue others out of darkness and into light. And I, I hate to break it to you, but this is messy and it's not safe. And the reason I say it's messy is because it involves delving deep into people's lives. It involves getting deep into people's stories and entering into their darkness. And, and this is not a simple one-time thing. This is not something you decide to go and do on a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock and end at 8.30. This is 
This is life. This is about entering into people's stories. If we're talking about individuals, if, if we're talking about large global problems, it's, it's doing stuff like what Kenny Isaacs is doing by entering into the problems in Sudan, entering into the, the thickness of darkness, putting his life at risk because he believes that we have a mission as Christians to go into the darkness and bring light. Now we have some challenges John writes in his gospel, in John 3.19, he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus comes into the world. Jesus brings light. A light has dawned in the darkness. People stuck in darkness resist. People who are held captive resist the light because they don't want their deeds exposed. No one wants the lights turned on when they've grown to love their darkness. There's an interesting phenomenon that, phenomenon that psychologists refer to as Stockholm Syndrome. In 1973, there were four individuals who were held hostage in a bank in Stockholm, Sweden. And after a period of days, I think it was six days, these hostages were set free. What shocked the world was the way these hostages responded to their captors as the captors were being hauled off to jail. As the captors were being hauled off to jail, the hostages hugged them and kissed them, demonstrating that they had developed affection for their captors. And this is what psychologists call Stockholm Syndrome. It's when prisoners begin to love and have feelings toward and affection toward their captor. The FBI estimates that about 27% of all people in a hostage situation show symptoms. They show signs of feelings of affection, of loyalty, feelings toward their captors, often even defending them in court. You see, it's an interesting thing that John, the Gospel of John says light has come into the world, but people love darkness. People have developed an affection, a loyalty to the enemy. You see, they've, they've become to, to see the enemy as someone to love and defend. And they don't want to be set free from their dark passenger. They've fallen in love with their captor. Paul writes in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that people are actually blinded by the captor. They're blinded by the evil one. And this keeps them from being able to see the truth of the gospel, the truth of the light, and respond to it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The captor has, so to speak, brainwashed the prisoners such that they don't want to be rescued, such that when the rescuers come in, the prisoners resist the rescue operation. So what do we do? Do we give up? Do we quit? No, we keep reading in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, 
let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do we do? We pray. We pray. We ask God. God, can you bring light into my friend's heart? We pray to the same God who at the creation spoke and light came into being. We pray to the same God at the creation who spoke and brought order out of chaos. And so we pray to God, God, for my mom, would you help her see the light of the gospel? Would you help her to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Would you open her eyes? God, for my brother, would you set him free? God, shine your light in his heart for my roommate. God, for my wife, would you shine your light in her heart? Would you do a work of transformation and bring her to Jesus? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One final thought, and that is to notice that we're not just called out of something We're called into something. We're called out of darkness. We're called into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This kingdom that we're called into is a kingdom at war. It's a kingdom that's warring against darkness. You and I have been called out of one domain into a new kingdom that wages war against an enemy. It's a kingdom that's fighting against corruption, greed, brokenness, bondage, enslavement. Ultimately, it's a kingdom that's fighting against all sin that entered the creation when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. It's a kingdom that seeks to correct and restore what was broken and destroyed in the fall. We're called to a kingdom that seeks to bring peace, wholeness, and freedom to God's creation. We're not just called out of something, but we're called into something. And we're called to invite others into this new kingdom with us. One of the images the Bible uses, and I want to switch metaphors. One of the images the Bible uses is inviting others to a feast, to a banquet. It's the image of inviting others to God's table. It's the picture of inviting people to the ultimate after party that's ever been thrown for all time. And there's a parable in Luke 14, and I just want to read it, and I just want you to listen to it. It's in Luke 14, and it talks about this banquet that God has prepared for people, that people are invited to. It says in Luke 14, 15, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied with this story, A man prepared a great feast, and he sent out many invitations. But they all began, but when the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began to make excuses. One said, I've just bought a field, and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pair of oxen, and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I now have a wife, so I can't come. I got didn't even ask to be excused, just I have a wife. Can't come. 
I, I found it humorous as I was reading. Verse 21, the servant returned and told his master what they had said. Hey, they're not coming. They're, they're not coming. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town. Invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. And so the master said, go out into the country lanes. Go behind the hedges. Look under bridges. Look in the the most remote hiding places and urge anyone you can find to come so that the house will be full. Notice just two things about this parable. Number one, look at who's invited. Look who ultimately shows up. The broken, the outcast, people that probably didn't feel like they fit in very well around church, people that probably didn't feel like they measured up much to the big scary Pharisees, people, ordinary people with real problems, brokenness, their own junk, and God says, I want them at the table. I want them here. I want them to be here and notice something else about this passage God says I want the table to be full I want the house full so go and invite and just in the previous chapter in Luke 13 29 it says and people will come from east and west and from north and south literally every corner of the globe and recline at the table in the kingdom of God Now, we're just moments away from coming to the Lord's table together. In fact, I'll go ahead and ask the elders to go ahead and go back to the table and get organized. We're going to come to a table today, and it's a table that's designed to help us remember something. When I was a kid, we had a little table at the front of the church, and and it had inscribed in the front of the table, do this in remembrance of me. And there's a key word that ought to be running around in our minds as we think about coming to the table, and that is the word remember. We come to a table today that helps us to remember backwards. It helps us to remember how we used to be a part of the kingdom of darkness. And even if you came to Christ as just a little kid, you were rescued early, but you were rescued out of a kingdom of darkness and brought into a new kingdom. It's a time to remember that and to express thankfulness and worship to God. It's a remembering backwards to who you were, to where you've come from. And it's also a remembering forward. It's a a remembering of looking forward to this ultimate table. This table today is, is only a symbol of a table that's to come, where people will come from every tribe, nation and land and and recline around the table together it's a forward looking that says you know what this kingdom of God will defeat the kingdom of darkness there's an ending to the story God wins at the end of the story and we remember forward that yes our God is a God who wins the battle and it helps us keep our focus in the game but there's one other aspect of remembering that that we don't often think about when we come to the table. And that is to remember who's not here, who should be. We come to a table that has empty seats. See, it's a table that's not yet full. There are empty seats at this table. The Joshua Project 
projects that there are currently about 7,000 unreached people groups all around the world. People that have no idea that there's a table. People that have no idea that they're in captivity and there's a rescue operation. This represents 2.84 billion people. About 40% of the world's population has no idea that there's a table. And you and I have been given an opportunity to come to a table, but we've also been invited into a rescue operation to invite others to come to these empty seats. Here's just a practical thing that you can do. Go to a website. It's called unreachedoftheday.org. Or you can just go to the Joshua Project. It'll bring you to this site. You can receive an email every single day about a different unreached people group. You can, pr you can print off a calendar of unreached people groups around the world that will help you pray. I signed up for this myself to receive a daily email because to be quite honest, I don't think about unreached people around the world. I tend to think about myself. But as we come to the table today, can I, can I ask you to remember backwards, to remember forward, but also remember their empty seats at the table. In the inside of your worship folder, it says missions exist because worship doesn't. Take that home, read it, chew that over with your friends, with your family, with your small group. We come to the table today to remember the work of Christ, but we come to a table that has empty seats. Now the elders are going to now make their way around and pass out some bread and juice. Uh, this um, Hold on to it. We'll all take of this together in a little bit. And I want to ask you that since this is meant to be a celebration meal for people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm celebrating being called out of darkness into light. If you're not currently a follower of Jesus, we would politely ask that you just pass the tray on to the next person. There's no judgment from us. It's just that this is intended to be a celebration for Christians. Father, as we take the bread and the juice, may we be reminded of your great work in our lives and remind us of the work yet to be done. In Jesus' name, amen.